0: Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, the podcast with me, your host Damian Mason. As ever, we've got a good program for you because it's informative and it's about something that is near and dear to the heart of everybody in agriculture. Without land, there is no agriculture. We talked about soil a few episodes ago. Soil, as you've heard me say, is agriculture's most precious resource. But Soil equals land. Land is agriculture's most valuable asset. Talk to anybody that's a farm owner that grew up on the farm. They always talked about, what are you giving away the farm? Don't give away the farm. Protect the farm. Agriculture is land. Land is agriculture. Today's episode is all about agricultural land. We're going to talk about what it's selling for, sales volumes, whether we're ups, whether we're down, what are the ups and the downs in the marketplace? Where are things moving really well? Where is there going to be more stagnation, trends in ownership, management of this valuable asset, and much, much more. Today's episode of The Business of Agriculture, all about farm real estate, trends, etc. I have a probably one of the best people we can talk to about this. His name is Howard Halderman with Halderman Real Estate and Farm Management. They are a company that goes back to 1930, an Indiana-based company started by Howard's grandfather. He is now the president of Halderman Farm Management and Real Estate. They manage farms in 19 different states 250,000 acres under management. They also conduct auctions and sales. They did about $100 million of sales last year, and they do appraisals. In fact, my family was a client in the year 2017, which is part of the reason why I thought to bring on Halderman. That's right. My mom died in 2016. The estate got settled. We did an appraisal with Halderman Company, and then I bought out my siblings. So, without further ado, Howard Halderman, welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast about the business of agriculture. Thank you, Damien. Glad to uh, be able to speak to you today. <laughs> I'm glad you came on. All right, did I miss anything? I just gave the quick and the dirty on your background. By the way, Howard is, like me, an agricultural economics grad from Purdue. He's four grades older, four years smarter, presumably.
1: Uh, what else did I miss? I'd say four years more experienced. I wouldn't go the smarter out, Damien. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's the long and the short of it. I am a member of the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers, I'm an accredited farm manager with that organization, which spans the entire country. And because of the nature of our business, I have a broker's license in six states. So we talked about um,
0: kind of the topics. Uh, What do you, I mean, if if you're listening right now, I mean, whether you're a chemical salesperson, whether you're a manure uh, equipment salesperson, whether you're a, out there in the seed and genetics business, it's all, it all goes back to land. I mean, without agricultural real estate, this is what we own, this is what we do, this is what we cultivate, we work, we produce because of the land. I can't think of anybody in agriculture that shouldn't be listening right now with peaked interests. Lots of stuff changing in agriculture and real estate. Am I right?
1: It has changed dramatically. You, you had a huge, first of all, the largest capital item in agriculture is the land itself. Uh, You can think about very expensive farm equipment, and that is true, but at the end of the day, the most expensive capital item will be the land that farmers farm, Uh, not necessarily from a rental standpoint, but it certainly is from a land ownership perspective, and we have a lot of volatility. You still go back to 07, uh, 2008, when the ethanol boom really started, and you saw land values double in many instances or more. And we went from somewhere around $3,000, $4,000 an acre to 10. And then we've seen a decline the last three or four years uh, due to lower commodity prices. And so there has been some volatility around land. I I don't want to characterize land as being extremely volatile because it is fairly consistent year over year. Uh, But it it has changed quite dramatically over the last 10 due to the uh, economics in the commodity price market.
0: Iowa State Farmland Value Survey, I read it every year, says that we're down about 20 percent from our peak. Actually, the Iowa State numbers say that they went up 2 percent in 2017 from 2016. I'd say that we're down about 20 percent in my neighborhood in Indiana from our peak. What do you think?
1: I think you're exactly right, and those numbers are very accurate. We we would show we, we do an analysis, Damien, where we look at our farm sales, so the ones that Halderman conducts, and we divide the sale price by the productivity index. Now, this you can get a little complicated for a podcast, but if you take, you can map your soils of your field, your farm, and it, the online service Surety will give you a map of those soils, and it'll average the productivity of each of those soils. Now, the productivity is not really what it'll actually produce. Uh, For example, the maximum productivity, I think, uh, soil rating in Indiana is 177 bushels. That farm's probably going to produce over 200 bushels because of genetic improvements. But it gives us a comparative way to look at farms. And so we can look at a farm that might have 140 bushel average productivity index and compare it to a farm that has 160. And what did those sell for And is there a difference? And usually there is, because again, as you said, right off the top, land is the most valuable component and the quality of the land is extremely uh, valuable when you look at a sale price. So basically we take the sale price of the farm, divide it by that average productivity index. And we use corn bushels because we're here in the Midwest. And so you end up with so many dollars per corn bushel of value at the peak, Damien, when that would be late 13, early 14, 2013, 2014, at the peak, we were somewhere above $60 per corn bushel productivity index. So back in that time, if you had 140 bushel average productivity index, if you took that time, $60, 62 uh, you probably would end up at a, a fairly average price. Uh, today, we're looking at prices that are anywhere in the high 40s to low fifty. Dollars per bushel, and we got down to as low as forty-five. So that would be a twenty-five percent decline if you went from sixty to forty-five. Right now, we're somewhere in the high forties, low fifties, and so I would argue that twenty percent decline is, is very accurate. So in other words, we
0: may have, we may, we, we would all call 20. I said that 2012 was going to be the high water mark. A farm a couple miles from me sold in 2012. And I was at that auction and probably could have done something on it. But I said, wait a minute. I've been telling everybody 2012 is gonna be the high water mark. I missed it by a year. Am I right? 2013 is the high water mark. You missed it by a
1: year solely because of the drought. Okay, So your, your prediction was accurate. And what happened then was the 2012 <laughs> drought drove corn to almost $8 or at $8. <clears throat> and so that extended that golden era of agriculture an extra year. So in terms of value
0: of real estate, you believe that we, based on your productivity uh, scale, meaning sale price divided by productivity number, you think that we actually went down a little bit and maybe have bounced back just a smidge since our So, 2013 high watermark, 14, 15, 16 adjustment years. You think that we've maybe come up a few
1: percent? Well, much like Iowa State's showing, (coughs) Pat (laughs) Karst, our vice president of real estate, does an analysis and he did a year end summary of all of our auctions. And, you know, an auction is a situation where you have a dynamic live event. We offer online bidding as well as phone call bidding. So, you can bid however you want, Damien, but basically, it's a public fair market determination. And so we look at all of our auction sales, and actually for '17, that whoppy analysis, productivity analysis, shows an increase in value of roughly 8% over the year. I'm not sure the market was quite that strong. I I keep telling my audiences when I do speaking engagements that it's been flat. But Iowa State showed up 2%. I'm not going to argue much. I, I think we're somewhere flat to maybe a little stronger uh in 2017. Yeah, flat flat to up
0: 2%, but your numbers again showed up 8
1: our, uh, at our auction sales it would show the trend line would show up 8%. Okay.
0: Yes, That's year over year 2017 over 2016.
1: We started the beginning of 17 at $48 per corn bushel on that productivity index. We ended at 52 on the trend line.
0: 48 to 52? Yes, sir. Hey, real quickly for our listeners, where would they find that productivity, that that number that you just gave? Like they're saying, wait a minute, I understand the the division, I understand the sale price, I understand, I agree with Howard that uh, that the live auction. Obviously, if you want to say, man, what's stuff selling for? Appraisals are fine, but you know what really works? Take a, a history of a hundred million dollars worth of farm auctions, and by golly, that's a pretty good litmus test. But where do they get that number, the one hundred forty-four bushel or one hundred seventy or whatever it is?
1: Well, it depends on your listener. Uh, If the listener's uh, from a a previous generation, uh, they might prefer to look at their soils books that they would used to be able to get for every county. And in those, they would rate the soil productivity of every soil in the county. Now, what we use is an online service called Surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y. And you go on to Surety and you probably have to get a license to that. But then that allows you to map your farm online And then it'll calculate that productivity index for you. And then you don't have to use the uh, dots and the colored method like I did back in 1988.
0: Yeah. The soil survey maps that people like you and I from the Corn Belt are familiar with, maybe you're familiar with it if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you're not. But uh, Surety, again, is uh, a website that you charge a membership or an annual fee to use their service? Yes. Okay. All right. So we just talked about values. Prediction moving forward, Howard. i say we're probably going to stay. this is my prediction, you're the expert. My prediction is I think we're probably going to stay the same and flat. I could even see another 5% dip only because stagnation and other asset categories are returning, meaning look at the stock market, we're at 25000 yesterday, and interest rate bumps a bit. I could see another 5% of give on real estate. I don't see 25% of give on ag real estate. Your thoughts?
1: I would agree basically hundred percent Damien. Uh, I, I think going into 2018, you're looking at commodity prices that are not what we would call robust. We're at commodity prices for corn and soybeans and wheat at or below break even right now. And so the question is, will we get the opportunity to sell $4 corn at $4? Many can be produ- profitable to some degree. And will we have good yields? But if you assume average yields and current commodity prices, we're not looking at a great income year in 2018. I would agree. Interest rates probably creep up a little bit. Other alternatives from an investment standpoint look attractive. So you're, you're probably not going to see farmland appreciate. One of the underlying causes of farmland to strengthen in 17 is for the last three or four years, there's been hardly anything for sale. Uh, They say, and I think Creighton University does the study, and and they would tell you that annually, the average number of farms to sell, I should say acres to sell, would be around 3%. And we've been seeing closer to 2% the last few years. So when you go out to the marketplace and it's pure supply and demand, and we've been looking at a low supply of farms for sale. So that's been very supportive of the market because when there's not much out there for sale, and there's some continued demand from farmers as well as investors, then you, that's supported for pricing. Yeah, so
0: really, that was one of the points that that Iowa State Farmland value survey pointed out was that part of our uh, 2% bump in Iowa, part of the numbers staying as strong as they are, is just because there really hasn't been as much inventory out there. Peak peak land prices being 2013, was that also, Howard, where we saw peak amount of acres being sold? When was the peak year for the last 10
1: The peak year for the last 10 uh, was really driven off of political motivations.
0: People wanted to sell to get away from a capital gain situation.
1: Exactly. So when when we look back at our peak sales, it would have been 2008 and 2012. And in both of those years, you go into the election, assuming uh, Mr. Obama would be reelected. And we were looking at a situation where there was a fear. It never happened. Congress never changed legislation. Yeah,
0: Capital capital gains rates didn't move. So it was actually unfounded. uh, So somebody might've moved into a selling situation that they would have not had to have done.
1: But back in 12, we, we started in August and we had three to four auctions every week from August through December. And the sellers told us we want to sell it in 12 and close it in 12 because we don't want to be subject to higher capital gains tax, which never even really happened. So, when I, when I talk to various organizations and crowds and audiences, it's all about supply as one of the key drivers of this current land market. And the last time we had big supply was 2012. And it's been in decline since. And by the way,
0: <clears throat> there is the idea when I said that I see another 5% to give, and you and you know, I might agree on that because of other asset classes uh, giving a good run because of higher interest rates. We might see, we might see based on the farm numbers, a bit of people saying, Man, I've got to get out because my equity is getting washed. Do you think there's gonna be a not any kind of a cascading nineteen eighties, but is there gonna be some people that get out because they have no other choice? And and that will be
1: when you go back to the nineteen eighties, that big decline was driven off of an oversupply of farms being sold due to extreme leverage and you, you had debt to asset ratios back at that time of 30% Damien. Uh, today we're not near that you're, you're looking at debt to asset ratios around 12, 13%. So we're in a much healthier position than what we were back then.
0: Is it your, the, is, is it to rec- to clarify? Is it your experience with the people you see out there? Cause I haven't seen this number. I've looked for it through two lending groups, but they won't give it to me. Debt to asset, debt to equity, uh,
1: on just the real estate around twelve to thirteen is what you just said. That's what I just said. I'm gonna find that. Here it is. Uh, <coughs> this comes from Mike. This comes from the USDA Economic Research Service, Damien, and the debt to equity ratio in two thousand seventeen was sixteen point two. The debt to asset ratio thirteen point nine. That got to a low in 2012, so we've been creeping back up since that time.
0: What's selling, who's buying, what sales trends do you see? Best farmland versus average versus poor. Obviously, you and I would always want to have the best. I don't own the best. I own average, (laughs) but uh, what's your thoughts on that?
1: It's been interesting. Uh, If you look at the Purdue survey of land values and rental trends from last June, what was interesting in that is rents actually declined for the best land, and increased for the average to below average cropland. And and basically came closer together, a narrowing of rents in those areas. But what we see in our sales is why you want to own the best farmland. The best farmland is still selling at a premium. And I could make some arguments in certain locations that the best farmland in the state of Indiana might be off 10%, not 20. Whereas your below average cropland, Damien, is down 30. Take an 80-acre farm in five fields. Very difficult to farm with today's farm machinery yep. and uh, kind of a hassle farm. Right. That farm is going to be off 25, maybe 30% in value. Yeah. Um, so while rents have maybe compressed and gotten closer together, the land value still, there's a lot of bifurcation in terms of quality and a lot of difference in, in what those land values sell for. But in terms of what is selling, it's the complete spectrum as the, historically there always has been.
0: If you somehow forgot, since I said earlier, this is Howard Halderman, Halderman Real Estate and Farm Management, an Indiana-based company. It's been around since 1930. They manage farms in 19 states, 250,000 acres under management. They sold $100 million worth of real estate last year and conducted 700 appraisals. So he is the agricultural real estate expert. Re- rent- rational property and rural lifestyle type property. I owned one once. Uh, I think that my thought is they hit their zenith when the baby boomers had money and still wanted to go out hunting, fishing, and uh, walking with their kids. I think that recreational properties have come down because the baby boomers were outdoorsy and had money and have walked away from that. That's my
1: assertion, your assertion on recreational rural lifestyle type properties. My assertion on those kind of properties is those really tend to follow the trends of the general economy. And so when the general economy uh, was doing very well in the early 2000s, what we saw was that, uh, and honestly, you saw some, I think Purdue's study actually showed farmland and timberland values to be right at $3,000 an acre for each. Since that time period, and really after 2008, when the financial uh, re- recession started, we saw that really retrace to where recreational and timber values Trade somewhere between 1500 and maybe 3000 today, but more $1,500 to $2,500 an acre. And your cropland today is worth 8 to 10 And so a big separation has occurred over the last 10 years between those two property types. But that recreational land really follows the general economy and who has that excess disposable income because there's still demand to hunt. There's still demand for people to go out into the country. Less demand, Damien, to live there. So your rural residences, I've seen more rural residences torn down off of farms to make them more efficient, to make them easier to farm Mm -hmm. because they were valued at $25,000 and the underlying two acres was at $20,000. I'm better off tearing that down, eliminating the insurance and the hassle and the risk and making my farm easier to farm. And there just wasn't the rental demand.
0: All right. I've got one for you, Howard. I make the crack that every time I go to an auction, I'm going to sign up on the name badge. I'm going to write on this. My name badge is going to say investor from Chicago, because that always gets country folks going. And if you're listening to this and you're laughing, you get it. If you don't get it, it's because in our part of the world, if you talk to somebody uh, and said, hey, how'd that sale go three days ago? I heard that property over there in Union Township sold. Well, I heard some investor from Chicago bought it. Investor from Chicago is my favorite, favorite uh, story that I hear after an auction reality of investors versus farmers buying stuff. Howard.
1: So the reality that Damien, I I like to make sure that's one of the things I address in all of my presentations, because the reality is historically speaking, your buyers are going to be farmers. Mm -hmm. And right now, In our marketplace, 76%. And I do a survey of all of my staff twice a year. And one of the questions I ask, who's buying? Investors or farmers? Mm -hmm. And to date, three-fourths tend to be farmers. That's all transactions, not just our transactions. Those that would be all in a locality. And so that's your majority buyer. Now, who are your farmland investors that are buying? It's not necessarily the investor from Chicago. When I start to look at who the farmland investors really are, it's a dentist in Rochester, Indiana. Mm-hmm. It's an individual who might be, be in some other field who grew up on a farm right. and still lives in that local community and they want to own that farmland. Or it might be an individual who owned farmland around the city of Indianapolis and has sold some of that for residential expansion and they're looking to do a 1031 exchange. So, all said and done, the institutional world. That Chicago investor or that New York hedge fund that you read about sometimes in the Wall Street, they're buying a very small percentage of the overall farmland. Yeah. You know, I, get a I lot think, of press, but it's not a big driver.
0: Yeah. I don't know that pension funds are going to own uh, the, the state of Nebraska, but I would say as a person that's sort of in that boat. If I if my business goes well, I plan on buying another farm and I will be sort of an investor owner because I will not do the operating. I'll cash rent it out. But I would say this, I think that we better get used to more of that kind of thing because eight to $10,000 acres, uh, you're going to need, if you are an operator, you're going to need the dentist from Rochester, Indiana, to put in a million dollars and be his operator, in my opinion, because there's the numbers get very large.
1: Well, when I started off this podcast, I talked about the biggest capital component of agriculture is the land. And so you're exactly right, Damian. What do you do if you're a farmer and you want to grow your operation to 10,000 to 15,000 acres? You're probably going to own 1,000 or 2 of that. But to own all of it is capital constrained. And so you need somebody else to own that land. And that's been the history of agriculture since it was first plowed under. We used to farm everything ourselves. And then slowly, more farms got owned by absentee owners. And that trend has gone on for 100 years and will continue. Uh, But having somebody else own that farmland is not necessarily a negative thing. It's who that party is and what kind of relationship you have with them. And can you construct a relationship that is long-term, And is a win-win. And that's really at Haldeman Farm Management what we try to accomplish in most of our leasing, if not all of our leasing situations, is we really try to create that win-win so that the tenant wins, as does the landowner.
0: There's nothing wrong with you being the go-between between the dentist in Rochester and the farmer that needs that uh, additional 400 acres that the dentist in Rochester just acquired. I mean, that's, that, that's going to happen. People lament it in agriculture. Oh, boy, you know, all these people owning this ground. Again, the numbers get so large. It's just what's going to happen. I don't see any way that it changes. Well,
1: I'll give you an example. We were working uh, the last three days down in uh, near Paris, Texas. And I've got an investor from out of the country that is looking at buying a large tract of land down there. And there's a tenant uh, on that who is excited about leasing it. What does Halderman farm management bring to the table there representing that investor? I'm able to look at it and say, you know what, we're going to probably recommend to that investor. He needs to double his grain storage because it will help his tenant control his corn and then sell it at times that are more advantageous for the tenant to get a higher price. It's a cash rent situation. It's not necessarily going to benefit that landowner directly in terms of the the value he gets for his corn. The tenant's going to get that. But again, what we're trying to create there is a win-win so that the tenant can be more profitable and hopefully over time pay better rent and take better care of the farm. And if that happens, then over the next 10 years, that farm's going to improve in quality, It's going to be more valuable. And during the meantime, our landowner is going to hit his goals in terms of uh, objective return. Excellent example.
0: Perfect way to wrap up the point about outside investors working well with farmers and operators. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Howard, I really appreciate you being with us, but uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to break this podcast into two separate episodes because you have so much valuable information. So listeners, you're listening to the business of agriculture. uh, I'd love you to come back because there's going to be a lot more interesting information with Howard Hallerman, but we don't want to overstay our welcome. We're going to cut this one and we're going to come back for another 20 minutes of interesting stuff on farm real estate trends. Thank you very much. Catch you on the backside.